This past week, uh, Jared is preaching today in, uh, well, I don't know where, Smith, Antioch, uh, his previous church he was at for their homecoming, and uh, we'll lift him up in prayer and, and uh, look forward to him being back as well. He asked me to fill in for him. I'll have to say that my confidence kind of took a hit earlier in the week. I told Nancy, uh, my wife, that I was going to be preaching today, and she immediately said, can you run me to Walmart? I said, why do you need to go to Walmart? She said, I'd like to pick up some no-dos. <coughs> told, told the choir Wednesday night, I said, I'm going to be preaching Sunday. And they said, this Sunday? I said, yeah. And immediately two or three of them turned around and said, beach weekend, beach weekend. But I'll have to say that these teenagers have uh, rebuilt my confidence, and I appreciate them being here. I mean... They found out I was going to preach today, and they've been camping here since Friday night to get a good seat. So <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, we do thank you for being here and, and look forward to you coming in. We're going to be looking at uh, the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you want to turn to chapter 12 in Hebrews, we'll read from that in just a few minutes. Uh, in Hebrews, there's no doubt that the writer of Hebrews was encouraging those who were teetering on the edge of apostasy or going back to, to uh, Judaism, uh, to step out. They were encouraged to step out in faith and to claim Christ as their Savior. But there was another important lesson that the Hebrew Christians needed to settle. And in chapter 11, we see all these heroes of faith that they're talking about, and they're listed there, and they would have been a great encouragement to them also. At that time, the Hebrew believers were still very much involved in their old ways, in some of their old practices, and they were having a difficult time letting go of their religious practices. So the writer of Hebrews emphasizes the fact that it is now the time, in fact, past time, for the Hebrew Christians to separate themselves from Judaism. They had confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they needed to take their place with the committed Christians. For those who had acknowledged him as Messiah, and acknowledged his Messiahship and his, his saviorhood, saviorhood, it was essential for them to disassociate themselves from the faith which they had also rejected Christianity and in fact crucified their Lord. And also God's judgment upon Jerusalem and the church was getting ready to happen as well in the temple. And it was time for them to step out in faith. Was, as we read through the first part of Hebrews, we see that, that it's talking hev heavenly, uh, talking about a heavenly scene. But now as we enter into the last sections in chapter 12, the, the Hebrew writer has carefully shown them that the Old Testament practices, the sacrifices, had been completed in the death and the resurrection of Christ. The old ways were now ready to pass away. Then in chapter 11, as you get up in chapter 11, he encourages them by listing all of these heroes of faith that they're very much familiar with in their own Jewish history. Today, these spiritual truths should speak to us as well. Because we're in a time in our history as Christians where our long-presumed rights and practices are being questioned, they're being challenged, denied in some cases, and Christians are being disparaged, discriminated against. And in the recent attack in Oregon, 
even giving their lives for the fact that they are Christians. God's truth is in our heads and in our hearts. And we need to allow it to go to our hands. So stand with me this morning. This is our custom here in the reading of the word as we turn to chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. Consider them him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together. Father God, we do come to you this morning thanking you and praising you, Father, for who you are. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. The word that you've given us is our path. It's our map to follow. And we thank you, Lord, that each one of us here have been given certain gifts, certain talents and abilities to fulfill the race that you have given us to run. So, Father, as we come before you this morning, I just pray, Lord, that you will be seen. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know some of you may not uh, believe this, but a few years ago, I was a long-distance runner. In fact, about 100 pounds ago, if I remember correctly. It was in high school, and uh, we had a, a football coach by the name of Harvey Foster. And Harvey had one of these booming, low voices. And when he called your name, if you were out in the hall or was doing something you weren't supposed to do, not only did you hear him, everyone in the entire school heard him. He just had a booming voice. He decided he wanted to start a cross-country club, a team. And he wanted that team to really work hard and to compete for the state championship. It was really his goal to have a cha state championship title there in our hometown in Gallatin. I was one of the ten guys that, that started out on that team. We worked a little bit my junior year, but then at the end of the junior year, he gave us a very detailed plan on how to become a great runner. And he said, you go home through the summer, and you need to practice, you need to run. He wanted us to run 10 miles a day. I'm not for sure I've run 10 miles in my entire life, but he, uh, he wanted us to run 10 miles a day to prepare. He wanted us to change our, our diet. He wanted us to change our sleep habits. He wanted us to exercise. He had a very, very detailed week-by-week -week program for us. There were four of us that were close friends that were also in that group together, and we began practicing. We began running in the afternoons. I mean, we were very dedicated to it for two days. <laughs> and then our muscles began to cramp up, and by the third day we said, you know, it would be a lot better if we just went out snow water skiing. And we did. We water skied. We'd go uh, different places to eat pizza, all kinds of things. The summer just flew by. Well, we didn't know it, but Coach Foster, in order to motivate us, had planned a meet at the end of that very first week for us to run in against six other schools. Now, my buddies and I sat down, and we were kind of truthful with ourselves, and we said, there's no way. We can't run two miles, which was how far the cross country was. So we came up with this idea that we would just run as hard as we could, as fast as we could, for as long as we could, 
and try to get so far ahead of the other guys that we could kind of make our way to the finish line. And that's exactly what we did for about the first three quarters of a mile. <laughs> At the end of the first, this is a true story. At the end of the first three quarters of a mile, two of my buddies were over in the bushes throwing up. One was laying down swearing that his leg was broke. Uh, and I was hugging a tree just trying to get my breath. And we started to see people come by and run by us and wave and laugh. And then we finally got enough motivation up that we finally did finish the race. We finished the last four places. <laughs> Needless to say, Coach Foster was not very impressed with us and not very happy with us. But we began to train, and we began to follow his regiment. We began to work, and we got much, much better at that. You know, that day that, that, that made it even worse was that he had announced into the whole school that we were going to be running, and it was at a local golf course, and there were tons of people there watching us. So the first day back after that race, we took a lot of kidding. We took a lot of, of uh, retribution from our friends. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that there was a great cloud of witnesses there. And those witnesses are those guys that he talks about in chapter 11. Those great uh, Christians of faith that had already run the race. They had run the race and they had done well. They had completed the race. And by the world standard, some of those in chapter 11 would have been classified as successful. They won battles. They, they stopped the mouths of lions. They put the enemy uh, to flight. But there were others in that list in the world that the world would consider as failures. They suffered at the hands of their enemies. But although they suffered and some were slain by the sword, they were heroes of the faith as, many, as much as any of the others. And all of them, by their example, have encouraged us to walk and to run by faith. The scripture there in verse 1 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us. Do you know you have a race? God has given you a plan for your life. People that you meet, people that you run into, the ministries that you're in, the abilities that you have, the talents that these guys have, have shared this morning, all of those things are part of our race. The Christian uh, is sometimes listed as a, as a believer, uh, or as a believer, he's, he is able to walk, the athlete is able to run, and some Christians are just listed as soldiers, and they are to stand. So today we can stand, we can walk, and we can run, and one day Jesus will return, and we'll also be able to fly. However, the analogy that he uses in this scripture passage is about running a race. In the earlier uh, part of, of the Hebrews book, we read about the perils of drifting that led eventually to these new Christians converting back or, or falling into apostasy going back to their old ways, just being bearers of the word and drifting along and doing nothing about God's salvation. But now in this part, in chapter 12 of the epistle, the writer is speaking to believers about the perils of remaining stationary. It's something for new Christians especially, but also older Christians. When we quit moving forward, when we quit moving and following our goals that God has for us in our path, 
One of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is the peril of just remaining stationary and doing nothing. The problem with many Christians is that they do not continue to grow with God. They get saved, they give a testimony, they're baptized, and that's all they ever do. We as Christians need to help motivate, help to encourage new Christians especially, but also others that we see that have become stagnant. They never maintain a serious study of the Word, and it's essential for growth. God has given us this book. It's our path. It's our guide. It's everything that we need to know to get through and function in this world and provide the type of relationship with him that will be pleasing in his sight. They're like the little girl who fell off the side of the bed during the middle of the night. When she began to cry, her mother ran to her and said, Honey, why did you fall out of the bed? How did that happen? She said, I think I just stayed too close to the place where I got in. And, you know, that's a problem with Christians. Sometimes we do those initial things, and that's as far as we go. We stay too close. We stumble and falter, and we fail because we're staying too close to the place that we got in. The Christian life should be a race. We need to make progress. We should not be stationary. You know, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they came out on the other side. At that point, they were no longer slaves. Not only did the Red Sea separate them from their captors in slavery, but it also destroyed their masters. And by the time they got to the other side, Pharaoh and his army were dead. But Israel still needed to keep going. They needed to progress. They needed to get to the promised land, and they needed to get there as soon as possible. Most of them never made it. Most of them never made it. The wilderness journey should have only taken a short time, and during that time, God would have made slaves into soldiers. Yes, they needed to run the race. They needed to progress. But instead, they went around in circles for 40 years. They remained in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They didn't believe that God would provide for them. They didn't believe that the promised land was going to be what it was going to be. And they wanted to go back to what was familiar and what they knew. There was no longer any danger that they would be forced back into slavery. Slavery. Their, sla their masters were dead. The danger was not that they would be forced back into Egypt. The danger was that they would desire to go back. And as Christians, sometimes we desire to go back to the old way if we're not staying in the Word. In fact, they did that very thing. They desired to go back. The story's in Numbers chapter 11, verse 5. So Christians cannot be lost, they cannot be made slaves again, but if they do not progress, if they do not run their race, if they stay too close to the place where they got in, we will stumble and we'll falter and we'll fail. Many stop running their race because of discouragement. Some, something goes wrong in their life and they give up. They get their feelings hurt and they, they, don't, get, uh, they don't get what they want and they get completely out of the race. You know, for Christians, we're pretty close-kill. We allow things to, to break us down. We have to learn the word perseverance that's talked about in the Bible. Harvey Foster used two words a lot, our old coach. One was perseverance, and the other one was intestinal fortitude. First time I ever heard that word was from Harvey, and he was questioning my intestinal fortitude. 
And when I finally found out what that meant, I was a little hurt by that. <laughs> Harvey Foster taught me the meaning of those words, both of those words. You know, there's sometimes that things just don't go right in our lives. There's a story, and some of you have, have probably heard this illustration before, but there's a story about an old farmer and a mule. I'm from Tennessee. I have a lot of farmer and mule stories. But this farmer and this mule had worked together and, and plowed together for 40 years. Eventually, the old mule finally went blind. And the farmer just didn't, didn't have the, the heart to put him down. He just allowed him to just kind of roam around on the farm. And usually we'd stay right up by the house. But one day, this old mule wandered out into another lot, stepped up on the front of the top of an abandoned well, and fell down in the well. The well was pretty deep, and they could barely see the old mule. But the mule was alive, but there was no way to get him out of the well. The farmer called all of his friends and all the neighbors, and they came over, and they looked. They said, you know, this farmer, this mule has lived his life. Really, we just need to put him out of his misery. And the farmer couldn't watch it. He went back inside, but all the other farmers just decided they would just bury him. And they started throwing dirt in the hole. Now, the mule was down in the bottom of the hole, and all of a sudden he started feeling the weight of all this stuff falling on him. It was falling on his back, and it began to get heavy. And finally, he just shook real hard and threw all the dirt off. But before long, all that dirt that he was throwing off his back was landing around his feet. And he had to kind of step up and stomp it down. And for about four hours, this went on. He would get dirt on his back. He would shake it off, and then he would stomp it down. And before long, he was almost at the top of the hole, and he was able to step out on his own. The story there is that we need to do what? We need to shake it off sometimes and step up. We need to forget about those things that we can't change in our life and shake it off and move forward and step up. When Hebrews was written, the Greek Olympics were very popular as they are today, and it was well-known fact that in any race, you didn't carry anything extra with you. Now, back when I used to, to race, uh, when I finally got serious about it, the coach would put five-pound weights on each one of my ankles, and when I ran for practice in the afternoon, we practiced with those weights. But there's no way that we would have ever tried to run the race because there's no way we would have ever won or had a chance to win with those, those own. But, he was, but once we took it off, we were much lighter. We were able to run. Everyone in here has things that they need to just get rid of that's hindering them in their Christian walk. So verse 1 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You know, there are many things that can keep us from fulfilling what God has us to do. And I want to just open it up. We don't usually do this, but can you give me one thing that can hinder us, something that hinders us from fulfilling what God would have us do? Anyone, just shout it out. What was that? Fear. Fear of failure. Our pride. Distractions. Any others? Money. You know, sometimes family can keep us from fulfilling God's plan in our life. Friends, bad habits, addictions, hobbies. There are all kinds of things that can keep us from fulfilling what God has for us to do. 
You know, it not only speaks of weights, but it also says the sin that so easily entangles us. You'll notice that it doesn't say sin, but it says the sin. It's talking about a particular sin, and if we look back uh, in the previous verses, I believe it's talking about unbelief. It says, therefore, we know that it goes back. So the sin referred to here could easily have been the sin of unbelief. The Old Testament saints in chapter 11 won the victory by faith. But the sin that will lose the victory every time is the sin of unbelief. And when it concerns God, unbelief is just the lack of faith. There's nothing that can hold us back in our race for life other than unbelief. Do you remember uh, a race that some of you older folks will remember this? We used to uh, do, it was called a bag race. We'd get a uh, grass sack and we would put it up, uh, we put our feet in it and we'd try to run with that and we looked awkward, we looked funny, we'd fall down and sometimes that's the way things are if we don't get rid of those things that entangle us. Unbelief is the sack around our feet that holds us back in the race of life. The last part of verse 1 says, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know, the Christian race is not a 100-yard dash. We found that out in that first run that we did. You had to take your time. You had to kind of pace yourself. There are a lot of things that, that you have to watch for. It's a long-distance race, and quite often it's also full of obstacles. So we need to be patient to go the distance, and we need faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to overcome the obstacles. Faith and perseverance are the conquering, uh, or conquering graces, and by God's grace, we need to cultivate them. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, the scripture says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, not only, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. So the Christian life is a race, and all the faithful in chapter 11 are our encouragers now. Those folks that have gone before us at Green Pines are our encouragers. The life that they lived and the example that they gave are encouragement to us. But there's one person who is the greatest example and the greatest encourager of all of them put together, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not encouraged us from some far-off theoretical uh, theory, but he has run the race himself. When he talks to us in the Scripture, he's talking from experience. As we run, we feel the effects of fatigue and adversity, like some strong headwind against blowing against us. We need to look ahead on the path and see our Lord Jesus. In verse 1 and 2 again, it says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. We need to fix our eyes not on a pastor, not on a, a teacher, not on a music leader, but we need to raise our eyes. If that screen wasn't there, you'd see a great cross to look at. And that's what we need to keep our focus on, is the cross of Christ. It's Christ that makes the rules for the race that we run in, and he is our judge and he's the rewarder of our faith. He determines who has reached the mark, and from him and in him, we have the reward. Can there be any reward? Can there be any trophy that surpasses Jesus saying to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant.
Can there be any joy greater than receiving a crown and being able to one day lay that at his feet? So as we look at Jesus, we are conscious of the fact that he also ran for the reward. In the last part of uh, verse 2, it says, Who for joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He ran the race for joy of having his redeemed ones, who are you and me, with him in glory. And one day, if you're a believer, you will be. He went through the bitter anguish of the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame, for the cross was a shameful death, and he won the prize. And in response to all that he has done, the Father has seated him, and the only God-man in heaven, at his own right hand. He's run the race, he's won the prize, and he has gained the victory. And you know what? The victory that he won is also our victory when we are in union with him. Our race may be long, but not as long as his. Our race, your race may be hard, but not as hard as the one that he had to go through. So let us run the race with perseverance that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And finally in verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, the whole object of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is what it says in that scripture, that we might consider him, that we might consider Jesus. The Old Testament types and prophecies were about Jesus. The New Testament is all about him, his work, his bride, his kingdom, and his coming again. We need to read and meditate on God's word if we want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So in this verse, we are admonished to consider him as we run our race. And what's the reason for doing that? It's our sustaining force so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, Jesus knew that the race that we were going to be on was not easy. It's hard. It's tough. And that's why he sent his comforter to be there with us at all times so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. But we also need to consider the fact that Jesus now sits as the victor in glory. So as you run your race, we need to consider him, to make him our heart's delight. And these meditations will lift us up above the cares and the grief of his, pres of his present moment. Paul said in Scripture, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. Is that not exactly what God did for us? Looking down upon us as we were in our race, unable to finish, with the sin and the pain that we were enduring, he left heaven, he left the stands, and he came, was born, lived as a man, died on the cross, and rose again to provide a way that you and I might be able to finish our race. 